And now, coming to you live from 2015, it's Jonathan Strawn and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast. Excellent introduction, and it's 2015, and you have and and, and you've had a birthday, and you haven't lost that lung volume yet. Go, <laughs> well, actually, I did. I just got I just got a more sensitive microphone. Ah, that's what you do. So yes, well, I'll, I'll move it away. And Thank happy New Year. Thank you very much. Happy New Year to you too. I, I'm 51 as of yesterday, and I don't feel a day over 70. You don't even know. You don't even know. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> However, I, you know. A, a warning now. I intend to be doing this podcast when I turn 70. I expect you to be too. Okay, good. I just wanted to make sure you didn't have any plans. I'm just not sure that I'm expecting to be doing it when I turn 70. Okay, well, we'll we'll work on that. One bridge, we'll cross cross that bridge when we come to it. Fair enough. We'll, we'll draw that bridge when we come to it. However, we've got a great year ahead of us, really. 2015. I've been looking at forthcoming books listings at stuff that's coming out. There are odd books coming out in the mainstream. I was talking to you earlier about a Ishiguro Arthurian novel, for goodness' sake, which I would never have anticipated. I would never have guessed either, but I wouldn't have guessed a cloning novel from him either. So there you go. We're about to, I hope you've braced yourself, Gary. I hope you've got a large glass of wine because uh, we're just about to start up the, the uh, awards season, of course. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> it's well, science fiction. It, it's 12 months long. It's the awards season. <laughs> well, the first award of the year is the one I'm involved in, and we're in our final stages of looking at the Crawford finalists, and I can't say any more than that because I'm not actually one of the judges, but uh, it's... And, and, and But the problem is the award season is this. The problem is the award season this year is, again, looking back at last year, and we've already done our looking back at last year podcast, and people already know what we like, and we already know what everybody likes about last year. And well, we're gonna, and we're, some of those last year's novels are gonna get awards this year, but well, that, <laughs> well, yes, that is in fact how it works. That's actually the feature, isn't it? That the awards come. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not exactly sure which ones, but there's some great books to look forward to. Neil Stevenson's Seven Eves, whole bunch of things. Yeah. But we've done Ken so we've done first. Ken Liu's book, which you've got the copy of, yes, because you got one and I, I didn't. Better. What was that? A, a very early copy of it, and it looks. Uh, well, I, I, I got it literally today, so I don't know. So there are exciting books coming out. There's no doubt about that. There's a second Joe Abercrombie novel. Uh, there, as you mentioned, the Neil Stevenson um, novel. So um, there'll be things to be excited about this year, no doubt about it. Yeah. And you know, uh, ju just on the cusp of the new year, I saw announcement. Well, in fact, just immediately before the new year, there was a new science fiction magazine launched online called Terraform from Mo Motherboard, who uh -huh. you know, got a lot of people's feathers ruffled. I don't know if you recall, because in the first instance, they sort of said they were coming out to put science fiction online because there wasn't much short fiction online, and everybody got in a kerfuffle. Uh -huh. And then they said they were going to be publishing feminist science fiction, which also got everybody in a kerfuffle because they said there wasn't any of that either. And I suspect mm -hmm. actually that aspect of things was just clickbait. That was them kind of going, if we create a fuss, people will pay attention to it. But you know, they, they opened up with, with stories by you know, I think Corey Doctorow and Bruce Sterling and a very good story by Tim Maughan and a few others. So they started in an wow. interesting way. And there's, I just saw a fundraising thing for a new African SF magazine as part of Excellent. the... Yeah, the ongoing trend for the internationalization of science fiction, which is great. Uh, and then, <clears throat> of course, just before that, probably a month or two before that, uh, Michael Thomas and Lynn Thomas launched Uncanny magazine, which is mm -hmm. there. So there's new magazines proliferating everywhere. Uh, you know, just a subterranean, probably one of the best magazines of the last five years, closed its doors. We've had what two new ones in the last month and a half and another one announced just to make sure that there's still more science fiction than we could ever read. Which is always the case for me anyway. But I think that the, the, the fact that there are these new magazines 
um, is the, and you know this because you have to read more short fiction by far than I do. Is that flooding the market? Is that does that mean that things that would have been self-published are now showing up in magazines? Or are these magazines actually being edited? I know a little bit about Uncanny, Uncanny Magazine. I saw the um, first issue of it because of, of a good friend of this podcast, Amelia Beamer, has a story in it. Mm -hmm. And it looks to me like they paid, and, and from the correspondence she got as a, uh, as a submitter to the magazine, that they're really taking their editorial job seriously. Um, it goes back to the issue of how edited are all these online magazines, and how do you tell a good one from a bad one? Well, first of all, I mean, good and bad, subjective. Uh, obviously, the only way to tell is to read the thing. I guess if you're looking for some shortcut way to look at it, you could look around at recommendations and awards and all those sort of things as a bit of a guideline. That always helps. I actually think, okay, there's a couple of things, I think, and then I'll segue on to something else. First thing I think is that the real challenge isn't so much how well they're edited. It's how they differentiate themselves from one another. You know, what will make up an uncanny story? What is what is the purpose? What is the intent of uncanny or terraform or Clark's world or lightspeed? You know, is a Clark's world story indistinguishable from a lightspeed story? Is a, is a Lightspeed story indistinguishable from an FNSF story? Now, if you look at the old print oh. magazines, which we're more familiar with because they've been publishing for much longer, right? Asimov's has something of a clearer personality. Analog has a very distinct personality. FNSF, FNSF has a very distinct personality. These newer magazines, which are old enough to have perhaps developed a personality, are still going through that process. I mean... Lightspeed and Clark's World have both been around for well three or five, three to three to five years. I mean, Clark's World I think might even be ten. Right. Uh, Tor.com, if you, just as a, as a major source of fiction, I mean, it's different. I don't think it's ever going to develop a distinct personality because it is such a huge quantity of material it publishes. I don't think it wants to. I think it wants yeah. to represent different editors' tastes. Exactly. Uh, which it does very well. But I'm going to quote something which I don't normally do. I'm going to read you part of somebody else's review. Right now. Okay. This, um, is, uh, oh. this is Lois Tilton writing uh -huh. on locusmag.com uh, just three day, four days ago in her mm -hmm. 2014 Reviews in Review. Now, the primary purpose of it is to mention her most favorite stories, but this is her introduction. Looking back over 2014 to pick my favorite stories, I don't see it as a really good year for short SF. From many directions come charges that the field has fallen into, into a rut, and the evidence doesn't strongly dispute it. Subterranean discontinued its highly quality magazine, and no new periodicals have risen yet to replace it, although Uncanny shows promise. Overall, my assessment of this year's stories would have to be lackluster. Most disappointing were the old line print periodicals. There was plenty of good enough fiction published, but few stories that made me sit up in awe and think, I wish I could have written that. She then moves ahead to this comment about FNSF, she says... If the field is in a rut, it's most visible here. Only a few years ago, I recall selecting more stories from my list from this magazine than just about any other venue. Now, not so many. Asimov's. At one point, this magazine used to vie with F FNSF for the honor of premier source of short fiction in the genre. While the zine is less addicted to the work of the same regular authors, it still isn't publishing a lot of exciting new work. Analog. Here, stasis would seem to be a feature, not a bug. But given this, I found the quality of the fiction on the rise. Interzone. Just as Venerable Print Magazine definitely showed that's open to change, continuing a shift from dark future dystopia to more optimistic work that includes actual fantasy. That's a quick summary of Lois's view of the, 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 the print field. The magazines, the print field, yeah. Yeah. And I think she's mostly correct. Mm -hmm. That reflects my reading fairly well. I think there are a couple of reasons for it, and we can look at those. You know, uh, she's quite complimentary about you know, Tor.com and Clark's World, and I'd recommend you go and look at her piece on online. But uh -huh. I think there are so many competing sources for a discrete pool of writers that the more interesting, more exciting fiction is actually um, diluted across a broad array of spectrums. So not one magazine doesn't have access to as high prof as high quality a group of writers as they must, might once have done 
and probably the greatest change over the past 50 years in some ways is that the quality of the B-grade fiction is just written better line by line. I think all fiction is. And I think that uh, stories that are, are my favorite example, and, and, and I, I'm, I'm speaking out of sheer ignorance because you read 10 or 20 times as much short fiction as I do. And most of the short fiction I read comes in your anthologies or gardeners or riches and that sort of thing. But one example of this, which we've mentioned before, uh, certainly one of the finest short fiction writers in the last couple of decades is Robert Reed. And 10 or 15 years ago, any Robert Reed story would have been one of the outstanding stories of the year. But, but they're not, less and less do they look like outstanding Robert Reed stories because they're so reliable. So that if you have re reliable writers doing excellent work year after year after year, that can begin to look like a rut, but is it really a rut? Is, 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 do writers like that overwork a franchise, in his case, the great ship stories, or is, or, or is, is what they're doing as valid a form of innovative art within the constraints that they've imposed on themselves by having a series? I think, I think what they're, they're doing remains valid. I think what makes them slightly less exciting is, is us and not them. I think we become accustomed to their work. You know, I think yeah. Robert Reed has made a 25-year-long or 30-year-long journey, I guess, from being a, you know, a, a young Turk to being a old pro. A reliable old pro. And you know, it would have been much like reading Fred Pohl in the 80s or 90s. Mm -hmm. He I generally think. didn't excite. You were... Please. I mean, I think Paul, the, you know, the last really exciting thing he published, I think, was probably Years of the City. And so, yeah. you know, he was ringing through. Now, Reed remains, you know, at the top of his game. He's still producing stories that end up on recommended reading lists and ballots and all that sort of thing. In fact, Lois's year in review cites several of his stories. Um, I regularly take him for, you know, for you know, the best of the year and so on and so forth. Yeah. But you're right. No one's, no one's surprised about that. Um, well, my, does that, does that define a rut or is no, that I don't think, okay. It, it could, it, it says something about our perception of a particular artist, but I don't think that that's what defines a rut in the field. And okay. to some degree, I think, and not, I don't want to put words in Lois's mouth, but she and I have not discussed this when she talks about, mm there there being a rut i think it is the fact that there's an element of predictable solid but on exciting fiction being published and some of that's because like as i say it's this field being diluted thing just in terms of volume you know, there, you know there's still only x amount of really really interesting fiction being published but because there are right. so many magazines you know um and i could probably name 20 30 off the top of my head then you struggle to fill them with stuff that's worth worth reading and also one well, thing that's happened i'm sorry no I, I i think that's true and i think that you know if, if you go back to uh, you have to go back 50 or 60 years now when there were 20 or more print magazines and the same thing would have been true then i mean by and large the, the stories that people read in anthologies historical anthologies today are not the stories that were originally published in Fantastic Universe and Spaceways Science Fiction back in the 50s. Whenever you have that many venues, you're going to have a, a mass of, uh, of sort of, you know, extruded, I hate to use that term because it's become a cliche in fandom, of stuff that is filler. And every editor back in the 50s and 60s, and presumably up through the 70s and 80s and 90s and now the 2010s, knows that there's stuff that you just need to fill out the issue. And certainly the two blights that are on the landscape for my money are fiction that amounts to, I read old, I read old engineering fiction and I wish we could you know, see some more of it. And I have an MFA in creative writing, read all about it. Yeah, those are problems too, but I don't know if very many of the MFAs are submitting to the new magazines like Terraform and... Um, Oh I, th I, oh, I think you see them in the pages of The Dark and Nightmare, and you see them around the edges of Strange Horizons and Clark's World and and um, Lightspeed. Absolutely, yeah. 
I think that may be true. And I, I think there's this odd way in which horror fiction seems to attract young literati in a way that science fiction doesn't. In other words, you yeah. do get uh, you, you do get Ben Percy, or for example, writing uh, a werewolf novel, and you get uh, dystopian novels uh, like uh, California or like Station Eleven. Uh, but science fiction still seems to be more off than anything else. I, I think in the states, one of the really one of the central figures in the states uh, for and he would hate me for saying this for that pivot between literary young literary fiction and and genre fiction probably is Brian Evanson at Brown University because he writes horror fiction, he'll write science fiction for tour, uh, and yet he's a very respectable writing program director. And I know personally a lot of writers who want to be just like him. Um, but that's kind of getting off the subject. Yeah. Um, the other point I wanted to make about the magazines, the older magazines looking like they're in a rut, see if you think this is true. Magazines like Analog and Asimov's and FNSF, who are the big three surviving magazines, are and have been for years in a game of maintaining their readership. And the new magazines, and we'll take Terraform and Uncanny, for example, because they're the newest ones, are clearly in a game of trying to develop a readership and trying to develop a stable of authors. Now, isn't it likely that the way you hold on to the readers that you've always had is that you give them the kind of fiction that you know they like. And Analog has succeeded in that more than any other magazine probably in the history of the field. I think it is, but I think there's a hair to be split. And I think it's the hair that's split by the New Yorker. Okay. Once upon a time, you know, you would hear FNSF referred to as the New Yorker of the science fiction field. Yeah, okay. And... The New Yorker, for all that it turns over a stable of writers, for all that it has in its history energetically championed new writers, nonetheless has a, a, a certain level of quality and whatever else. But partly brought about the fact, the fact by, by the fact that it pays a colossal amount of money and is very prestigious. Well, yeah. You know, so that, that, that helps. FNSF, which is one of the most prestigious magazines in the history of the field, somehow has managed to... F- follow what appears to be a different path rather than publishing the same type of fiction or, or, or more to the point, actually publishing the same space, you know, publishing in the smart literary genre and, you know, end, end of the genre for 2015, they seem to have ended up just taking the same group of people along and having their stable of writers write again and again and again. Now, any magazine will develop a stable of writers. It's perfectly normal, and it's a right. really good thing to do. It's a sensible thing to do editorially. But it can possibly, if you're not careful, overrun the magazine a little. And the one point in Lois's piece that I really do agree with, I mean, I could go back less than 10 years, and I was saying in my year-in-review pieces that the October-November double issue of, S- of FNSF was possibly the best anthology of the year. Really? Oh yeah, absolutely. You go back to the if you go back five years or more, the double issues. You know, in fact, possibly maybe I'd have to look, but at the, at, at the date where um, FNSF went to, to from normal monthly issues to bi-monthly issues. But if you go back to those those October November issues, they were the, the anniversary issue in October November was a a banner issue with huge name writers in it with really great stories. You could end up taking three stories for a year's best from it, just from that one issue. And you would always be arm wrestling yourself over how many FNSF stories that you would take for a best of the year. Yeah. I'm not, I don't think I'm going to take any this year. Really? Yeah. Now, first of all, a question, because you would, again, know more about this than I do. Do we know, for example, that Gordon Van Gelder tries to save stories for that big issue because he knows he's got a standout issue coming up toward the end of the year? That he's going to, you know, make that an all-star issue, even if he gets a story submitted, the terrific story submitted a year earlier, he's going to hold it off for that year in the best. I've that's, never had that conversation with Gordon, so I don't know. We need no. to talk to Gordon about that. But, but what do you think? But uh, another thing about Gordon, uh, since we're speaking about the FNSF, which has been under, he has, within my recent experience, developed writers in the way the New Yorker magazine did. The most, the, the most. Uh, my favorite example, because she's a good friend, is Mary Rickard, 
who did not know what she was writing, did not know it was publishable until she started working with Gordon Van Gelder. Now, and, and she's been reasonably loyal to him ever since. Now, it could be that that kind of development of new writers isn't as consistent as it used to be among all the magazines. Maybe. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, certainly I have enormous respect for Gordon as an editor. I think the work he did at St. Martin's Press was extraordinary. And I think that certainly a good chunk of his tenure at the magazine, at FNSF, has been exceptional, really exceptional. So um, I'm puzzled to find myself looking at new issues of FNSF and feeling a little bit deflated by them, you know, and oh. feeling like, oh, it's just the same kind of stuff again and again. But do you feel that way even when it's demonstrably good stuff? Well, I don't know. I mean, what I don't see is, I mean, again, what with what Lois was talking about, I don't see those really sort of scintillating, sparkling stories that sit on top and make you go, wow. Uh -huh. now, now, it's not that long since they were publishing them. I mean, it's only six or seven years since they published The Merchant and the Alchemist Gate by Ted Chang, for example. Yeah. Uh, it's only okay. a year or two since you know, they're, they're publishing a um, story by um, R Raven Star and Golden Golden Thing, the uh, Jeff Ryman story. Oh, Jeff Ryman story, yeah, Golden Star and whatever. Yeah, yeah. they are you know, they, you know they've got a great past, and Gordon hasn't stopped being a great editor, but the magazine reads as though it's overwhelmed by a somewhat fusty older kind of fiction, and that's unfortunate you know, for, for, for them. And I think it does speak to this this sort of impact on the field of having a lot of stuff published. Now, it's always had a lot of stuff published, but just never more you know, more than now, you know. And you see this... Well, to go, yeah. back, go ahead. No, what are you saying? Go ahead and finish your thought. Well, I, I, I was going to say, Lois's point seemed to be that the whole field was in a rut, and... And is the field in a rut because you're looking at the same sources? In other words, is the problem, as you inferred, it might be earlier, that those scintillating stories are still out there, but they're so widely distributed among venues that you can't dependably look for them in any one source anymore? Um, that may be true. And I, I also I, I tend to believe that for most of these magazines, particularly, you know, I, I, well, I think particularly for FNSF and Asimov's, if they're in a bit of a rut, particularly FNSF, I think it's a short-term thing. You know, I think they'll turn them around. I really do. Um, but, you know, we'll have to see. I mean, the rumors are that they're going to get uh, Charles Coleman Finlay to edit more of FNSF, which may change uh -huh. it a little bit. But whether that proves to be, I've got no idea. It's just a rumor. Um, but it also speaks to something broader, and that is how we talk about this short fiction which is something that I'm very concerned about. I mean, I mean, how we talk about the field generally, but also about how we talk about short fiction specifically. Uh, I've just concluded the process of compiling the Locus recommended reading list for short fiction. And uh -huh. it highlighted more than ever that we are reading in discrete ghettoized po pockets rather than that we are reading collectively. Now, a lot of this is the outcome of the democratization of public publishing. It's cheaper than ever to publish. And by the almost entirely good thing that we've become much more diversified and much more open to publishing and presenting both diverse points of view and people from different backgrounds. There's a hell of a lot of work still to be done, but it's such a huge trend for the last five yeah. years, ten years, right? One thing that's happened with that, and I can understand why it's happened, I think, is that People are now, you know, people who didn't see themselves in the field at large have now seen enough stuff that they can read it within that almost exclusively. And they're not reporting back, you know. Uh, to me, for inclusiveness, again, just for me, to be really successful, it has to change the field at large, right? Um... It has to, has to be that these points of view become part of the entire spectrum of opinion and viewpoints that we see, and that then they in, that we then all become aware of them and talk about them, and they change what how how we see science fiction and fantasy. It depends on what you mean by the field. I mean, yeah. when you somebody change the field, I, I can see the idea of uh, we we don't need to 
dredge up Neuromancer again as having changed the way people look at things. We could look, for example, at Ian McDonald's various novels set in various non-Western countries and um, and Nadia Korofor's novels and and Ken Lu's. In other words, we we can look at patterns of works that sort of make us rethink the field. Like, okay, this to, to get back to Nettie's novel, which is coming out, one of the things to look forward to in 2015 is the American publication of Lagoon. Um, the simple idea that when the aliens land, they might land off the coast of Nigeria rather than off the coast of Manhattan. And I think that, not because of any one work, not because of Nettie's novel, not because of Ian McDonald's novels, not because of Karen Lord, but because of this whole movement, there's a general assumption uh, that science fiction is more diverse in its settings, it's more diverse in the cultures it portrays and that sort of thing. I think that's become a, a deal. You can't just write another uh, Aliens Land and the the area. I think, so, so I think that's I true. I don't know if a single one anymore is my point. Uh, well, what I am personally bemoaning, I, you know, I can't say it's a, a fault, is I see there's a lack of interest amongst a lot of fo you know, followers, readers, commentators in the field, in this more diversified field, in coming together and talking about the big picture of science fiction. You know, how does this element of diversification change science fiction? How does reading Chinese science fiction change how we see science fiction as a whole? How does, you know, and so you, you then, what you get is you get small pockets of, well, I thought this was excellent, and I thought this was excellent, and that's great, but you can't bring them together to say, and now what do we all agree is excellent? Well, but partly that's because you're talking about two different conditions here. You're talking about two different gateways, if you will. One is, yes, we want science fiction to be more diverse. We want to have um, multiple cultures portrayed in science fiction. We want to see more non-white faces. We want to see more women. We want to see more trans people. We want, but at the same time, that kind of fiction does not guarantee good or innovative or mind-blowing or genre-changing fiction. And we want to see that too. So what we really want to see is something that combines, I don't know, the best of what Nalo Hopkinson did in her earlier fiction with the best of what Bill Gibson did in his earlier fiction? I don't need uh, it to be in a single work, Gary. What I want is, I, I, for me, I want to see it all in the same conversation. I agree. I think it should be part of the same conversation. But what I, I'm saying is that a, a conversation about the first... Uh, this is going to get me in trouble, I think, uh, because I don't know if I can defend it. A conversation about diversification is not necessarily the same conversation as a conversation about quality. Oh, that's true. There I mean, is. I don't think any bad fiction. Go ahead. Hello. Go ahead. Okay. No, I, 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 as long as you're agreeing with, me. I'm, sorry, I'm simply saying that <laughs> a, a new idea may come about in the field. Okay, we we could look at something like the three body problem, which may or may not have a radical new idea in it. We won't really know that until we get to the second volume of that Chinese trilogy. Um, that could be an example of a novel coming from another culture, actually a best-selling novel, a very, very popular novel in China, according to Ken, when he was on our podcast. And it may have a new idea that makes us rethink science fiction at the same time. That would be a rare work in which you get the idea of diverse cultures represented in science fiction, diverse histories represented in science fiction, and a radical new idea in science fiction at the same time. And frankly, we have very, very seldom seen that. True. I think that's true. But I think that's not entirely... Okay. It's not entirely what I'm thinking about, what I'm troubled by. Okay. Uh, I think works will be in dialogue, I think, everything else. But what, but what I'm troubled by is an idea, amongst other things, that um, either you shouldn't be interested in what is being written in a particular area, or that, that, that people who are active in that area aren't interested in the broader picture of the field. You know, uh, I, I want to see how the consensus view of science fiction changes. And I see the field atomizing, and that's fine. Uh, yeah. I think there's a lot that's healthy about it, atomizing. But if you can't, and I've complained about this on the podcast before, if you can't step back far enough to get a big picture of science fiction once it's atomized, what are you talking mm. about? And one of the ways that you have that conversation, that dialogue, is that all of the commentators and readers and reviewers 
and you know who are active actually do attempt to come together and have that conversation. I mean, the locus. I mean, there are various tools, right, which are being used out there to do some of this. Whether it be a recommended reading list from Locus, a, a, a best of list on Tor.com, whether it be uh-huh. um, Nissi Shaw doing the year's best illustrious feminist science fiction for, um, or speculative fiction for Aqueduct, or Laird Barron doing the year's best weird fiction, or uh, I know that um, Left Press does a, a best gay and lesbian uh, uh-huh. stuff. But it's also, that's great, but it's also bringing all that stuff together. So you can canonize it collectively, not because canonization is valuable, blah, 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 but so we can all see what the field is doing and evolve it more and understand it better. You know, is is there enough unity left in the field for us to be able to do that? I don't know that there is, but I think that the push for unity is valuable. Well, I think I I, I, I don't know if unity is the word anymore. I think maybe dialogue is the word, maybe cross dialogue, maybe conversation, maybe there. You've got 18 people in a room, and they all represent different subgenres and and interests within science fiction. Great to have those 18 people talking to each other. My sense is that they don't, and it's not simply in terms of venues of publication. Because yes, there are anthologies of uh, best feminist science fiction and best gay and lesbian science fiction, and there are conventions. There's Galacticon, but there are, there are the military SF conventions. There are the SF conventions that want to talk only about alternate histories. And especially about alternate military histories. And especially about alternate military histories involving cool uniforms. I don't know what they write about. Do these groups really talk to each other or are they sort of sub, sub, subsets of I don't this know. broader region? I don't know. And I also don't know if this is a cyclical thing. I, I could picture a, a condition where what's happening is you have a whole bunch of people who um, have not seen themselves represented in science fiction and fantasy at large. And finally, there's a big enough scene that they can immerse themselves in that. And they haven't yet got to the other side of that process where they're then willing to look back outside it again and go, well, hang on, here we are. And I mean, uh-huh. I, I don't even know exactly what groups, I mean, any, any group that I named would be tokenistic and possibly unfair but you could pick any sort of whether it's uh british commonwealth former british commonwealth country writers or whether it's indian writers or whether it's glbt writers or whatever else it is and maybe you you will reach a point where those areas of the field are now sufficiently well developed or, or whatever the right word for that is, to actually turn around and then talk to the rest of the field more about what they're doing that's really excellent and interesting and engage. But right now, my frustration is I'm not seeing, to my mind, enough of that engagement. That attempt to say, well, you know, here is a list that includes this and that and that, you know. Well, I, I, I agree. And I think what you ideally want to do, and this is why I do not envy your either compiling the recommended reading list for short fiction, and especially don't envy your trying to put together a year's best short fiction, because you come up with an occasional story and um, which, which meets several criteria at once. Um, let me think, uh, because I'm, 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 what I'm thinking about now, and I'm, I'm blanking on the title of it, is a Jeff Ryman story, which deals with... Uh, Basically, the elimination of the gay population. Do you know which one I'm talking about? It's a very famous story. Um, yes, and, but I don't remember the title of it. And they find out a way to survive. And so, well, the point is that story, and Jeff Ryman is one of the best writers to do this I can think of. That story dealt, it seemed to me, with gay issues in a way that explained those issues to me as well as any gay fiction I'd read that year. And it was also a very original science fiction story. It brought these various issues together in a way that made a uniform, unified story out of it. It was a very impressive story. Uh, and th- th- things like that, is that what you're talking about, about bringing all these areas together? Not into the fiction, it's into the discussion around the fiction. Well, the story has to be a good story at the base. Of course it does, but I mean, yeah. that in itself is a very dangerous point, and you know it is, because it is. good and bad are subjective, and so you're, you're not necessarily going to get an agreement about what is or isn't good. But just parentheses for that, you and I come out of a culture which is somewhat biased 
in that it's biased a little bit toward literary fiction. It's biased toward people who can write good sentences. The Locus Awards are probably biased a little bit that way. We hear that there, there, there are specialized groups in science fiction, the people who give out, I don't know, people who give out the Sidewise Awards, the people who give out Military SF Awards that think we're biased. When we review the way I review, you select stories the way, and they're absolutely right. We are completely biased. Yes, we are. We are completely biased, and there's not much you can do about that at all. Well, no, that's not true. There's lots of people about it. You can try and be more aware and be less biased. But all the field, all these okay. groups have a bias. My defense of being biased, my, in parentheses before we let this go, being biased in favor of good writing is not the same thing as being biased against a particular kind of fiction. True. There's terrific military science fiction out there. There is, to be honest, there are well-written stories that I find politically not appealing that, you know, you have to recognize are well-constructed stories. I'm not going to mention the name of the author that we're both thinking of right now, but he's a very good storyteller. Look, um, that's true. That is true. Um, I think, and, and look, there are, as I say, increasingly discreet discussions of excellence. I mean, you mentioned military science fiction. Bain are about to publish the year's best military science fiction. There you go. Which I find a curious thing to do. It may be a curious thing to do, but I have a feeling that the people who read military science fiction really want to know what the year's best military science fiction is and more and, power and good to for them. them. But see, what I is also what I kind of want to do is I want to take all the various years best, and maybe this is the best analogy I can come up with. I want to take all of the various years best and munge them together and come out I would with. Love like, that. Go ahead and, and come out with, that, with some kind of thing where, you know, you had like a cage death match between all the year's best editors. And they'd had to sort of sit there and go, well, I don't really necessarily read whatever. They're like, I mean, I do, but let's say the year's best military science fiction. I don't read that. But now I'm going to have to read it and try and get some kind of a, 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 you know, understanding of excellence for it and then bring it into my, my worldview. And just as I have to bring uh. in. You know, the other as the year's best military SF editor would have to bring in from you know the year's best or the year's most illustrious feminist science fiction or from the GLBT year's best science fiction or whatever else so that you could move the field as a hold forward you have just put together a legendary worldcom panel I mean it's, it's going to have eight long <laughs> will go on for four hours. And it will result probably in the hotel burning. It would only work if you had a one-month-long workshop beforehand. Well, possibly. Because what will happen is what happens on every one of those best-of-the-year panels, which are always the most boring panels in the history of the world, and mm. each of those editors would not come and talk to one another, in effect. What they would do is they would dialogue about what they themselves were aware of and in their own area and their own list, their own various. And what you end up with in those panels is you get a series of unrelated uh, pieces of dialogue, of, of, of monologue, rather than conversation. Well, that's what, that's what tends to happen. You're absolutely right. So my, my fantasy was, I was thinking, remember um, James Morrow's novel, The Last Witchfinder, in which he has books talking to other books and books arguing with other books. Yeah. That's what I'd really like to see. I'd like to see the year's best military science fiction go up against the year's best gay yeah. and lesbian science fiction and have those two books have a conversation. Yeah. So, I mean... Maybe you know. Look, maybe I've just taken the whole pot, this whole episode of the podcast off on a tangent that's irrelevant and managed to offend people who I actually respect and wouldn't want to offend. But when I look at the field, I think that for me, the trend to diversity only will be, have been successful when it comes back together into a richer, more varied mainstream of science fiction. When I don't. Yeah, I, I, I think that's very idealistic. I think it's a sweet thought. I wish it could happen, but I don't see any mechanism by which it will. And I mean, what I'd say as well is I, what, what disappoints me are there's two different statements that uh, disappoint me. One is the statement that basically we've got no interest in that dialogue. We've got what we want. And I've had that from one or two people. You know, We don't really care uh -huh. about the broader picture of the field. We've just got this now. And you're going, well, 
Okay, but that disappoints me. The other one is when anyone says, oh, the reason that you don't like this work of science fiction or fantasy or horror is because, quote-unquote, it's not for you. No, you weren't the ideal audience for it, and so that's why you didn't like it. Well, there are, there are people, I mean, we know there are sub-genres. We know that alternate history is, is almost divorced from science fiction. Dystopian fiction is almost divorced from science fiction. There are people who only want to read one thing. There are readers out there who don't want to have dialogue with other readers. They want more of the same thing. I'm convinced there are hundreds of thousands of readers out there who are going to eventually stop reading fantasy as soon as they realize there's not going to be another Harry Potter. They'll Maybe. look around. Oh, sure, sure. But, that's, even that, but, uh, but I guess I'm talking about it from a more personal perspective. I mean, if, some, if, if I read, I don't know. Let's say, Gary, that I read an anthology of GLBT fairy tales. Okay. And I don't enjoy most of the stories in the book. Is it because I'm not a GLBT audience? Or is it because the stories didn't work as stories? And what I find, one of the, the, the um, responses I get quite often is, you're just not the audience for that. I mean, you're a... You're a middle-aged white anglo-saxon male kind of a thing and you're straight uh so you're not going to like this and you're kind of going well hang on i without sitting there and trying to go well i'm not like that i can think of all kinds of things where i've read glbt perspective works and enjoyed them you know which which, which takes me back to the um jeff ryman story Hmm. that i was referring to i mean there are stories that work as stories, even if they're about cultures and identities and orientations that you have no yeah. real personal experience of. If it works as a story, it's by and large going to work as a story. There are going to be other stories in that anthology that won't work as well for every reader, but might resonate with a particular set of readers. But yeah. that's that's not just LGBT stories. That's no, what know. science fiction does. It's what horror does. Sure, it's what romance sure. Yeah, I know. You know, you, you you know the field, you know the culture, and uh, it, it, a story means for you, uh, means more for you if you do. My point is that a, uh, here's a good example. Um, although it's an old example now, but you could arguably you could make a good case that Joel Haldeman's The Forever War is one of the classics of military science fiction, and you could make an argument that it's also one of the classics of gender bending science fiction, since so many of the cultures involved as they come into the future and that are are gay oriented cultures um and he deals with both things in the same novel and i've talked to people from both of those cultures that is people who like military sf and people who like lgbt sf and they both see what they want to see in it and what they want to see in it is in fact in the novel it's a very sensitive very shrewd novel i don't know if somebody could write a novel that did both of those things today as well as Haldeman did in what 1972 maybe so I mean yeah uh, see I, I think a really successful work of fiction gi- gives what forever warriors uh, you know, does as you're saying it gives people different things to take from it and so it can be for a particular audience but still give other audiences a lot you know I think that's true. Yeah, I, I, but I think the issue can be raised. The issues that we want to raise, um, when the Left Hand of Darkness appeared, uh, it was everyone knew that was a great classic of science fiction. Yeah. And really, I think it was after the fact that people realized, well, part of that being a great classic of science fiction is it makes us rethink gender in a way which no science fiction work had really asked us to rethink before. Yeah. Um, in other words, I don't think that's what made the book, but I think that was a significant part of what is the book, and uh, the, that, that's what makes it a, a successful novel. Are we getting novels like The Left Hand of Darkness or The Forever War or The Female Man or Neuromancer every year? Of course we're not getting them every year. Well, we never did. We never every year. And, and also, for the most part, you didn't know you had until a few years later. Exactly. Uh, absolutely. Though you did with Neuromancer. Well, Neuromancer kind of had a dramatic impact at the time, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, although, to be honest, there was a cultural moment. Neuromancer, remember the novel appeared after the movie Blade Runner. Yeah, I know. So to extent you had a massive audience prepared for a cyberpunk world um, as the novel came out. And it, was, it came out as part of a Terry Carr's 
you know, collection of Ace specials. As a matter of fact, Terry Carr, didn't he publish The Left Hand of Darkness? I want to say series? yes. Yes, I think he did, yes, in the new in the original Ace Science Fiction specials. Yeah. So there you've got one editor who can make a huge difference. Well, I mean, we talked about this before, I think, I mean, in previous episodes, uh-huh. about whether you could do the new Ace Science Fiction specials again. And maybe you could. I think it would be interesting to try. Um, there are certain periods of time in the field where you get new generations of writers coming along. And if you took a talented, established editor and gave them free reign to put together a line of half a group of half a dozen books just based on, on the idea of excellence and whatever else, maybe you could. It's a pretty extraordinary thing to, to do, that nuance in okay. science fiction specials. If you have money behind it and a really good editor, I can't think of anything happening like that recently. I mean, certainly David Hartwell had a great great run at Timescape. Uh, certainly uh, when the Warner Aspects contest ended up with Nala Hopkinson's Brown Girl in the Ring, that seemed to be a kind of game changer in science fiction. Uh, and yeah, but, but Terry's allowed to go out and go, hey, um, Michael Swanwick, write me a novel. I've got six slots. Hey, hey, right. you know, and, and so several of those books were. I mean, I was reading an interview with uh, with Bill Gibson about Neuromancer just uh, a month ago, uh-huh. and in it he was saying how you know Carr came up and kind of went, write me a novel, commissioned it from yeah. just like that. Well, yeah, and, and does anybody have that power now, or does anybody have that no, insight? No, not really. I mean, there probably a f- there are a few, but not not much. And not in a coherent way to do a, a new list. I mean, uh, the, cl- the closest I can think of right now today would be Joe Monty heading Saga. And he's putting together a broader spectrum of a list than simply right. something like the New Science Fiction Specials was. And also the, uh, the, the thing that Terry Carr could do when he went to Michael Swan. It wasn't Lucius Shepard's Green Eyes part of that series it was, as well? yeah. Uh, so, the- so he goes to Lucius Shepard or he goes to Bill Gibson or and and... and those were unknown names, or somewhat known names. Well, I mean, Gibson. Gibson had been around for half a decade. Yeah. And uh, probably in, in, in the same for, for Shepard. I mean, the, the science fiction specials from memory were uh, The Wild Shore by Stan Robinson, who mm-hmm. was had also a, a well-established name from short fiction, Green Ice by Lucia Shepard. Um, Into the Drift. Into the Drift by Michael Swanwick. Uh Carter Schultz's Palimpsests, Howard Roll Drops Them Bones, and Neuromancer. Wow. I don't know if anybody could do that today. I don't know. But maybe they could. You know, if if you'd picked four or five years ago, if you'd started with Paolo Bacic Galupi oh sorry, sorry, Bruce No it wasn't. Uh if you'd started with um uh Paolo Bacigalupi's The Wind Up Girl. And it asked right. uh, several other writers around at that sort of time. If you were to come along right now, and, and maybe you'd picked up Anne Leckie or something, or maybe you'd pick Ken Lu, and maybe you could. I think it's simplistic and unfair and reductive to say know. that it couldn't happen today. But it would, it would take an unlikely confluence of events, I would say. I think it would take an unlikely confluence, and I think what you mentioned earlier about the audience being balkanized uh, is a problem also. I mean, Ace... And to some extent, Terry Carr had a following as a publisher. I'm not sure that's going to work. I mean, if you go back and look at novels over the last 20 or 30 years that might have been part of the Terry Carr specials or writers that might have been tapped by Terry Carr, whose novels might have had a much greater impact, one of the ones that comes to mind, uh, one that comes to mind is Kathy Goonan's Nanotech series. Another writer that comes to mind is David Marasek, because on the basis of his short fiction... Everybody thought those novels were going to change the world. And they were very yeah. good. Yeah. But they didn't have that impact. Yeah. I think there was a moment where uh, Charlie Stross was leading up to Accelerando that if you had had him and Corey and a couple yeah. of other writers of, of that moment, I think it's, a, it's, it's a, rep- a repeatable thing. Possibly. But unlikely. Well, it's commercially well, unlikely. Let me spend the last few minutes. We'll spend the last few minutes on my topic for this year, which is <laughs> which is less cheery, Gary. It's it's. I think it's very cheery. I don't know why you think it's not cheery at all. We've already. We're not going to talk about people who've died. It's tor- It's horrible. People died. People we love died. Our favorite writers died. 
I'm talking about people who died a hundred years ago. No, people who were born a hundred years ago, most of whom are dead. <laughs> yeah. Wait, I love it. Most of whom are dead. Yes. 2015 is, I mean, like 2014 was the hundredth anniversary of, for example, H.G. Wells' The World Set Free, which gave yeah. us the atomic bomb. Uh, it was the anniversary, as we well know, of the birth of Ari Lafferty. So I thought, when we look at people whose centennials are coming up in 2015, which ones are going to get celebrated and which ones are going to go unnoticed? And in preparation for this list, um, I will th I, I will give I, I will just list the number of the, the the names that I copied out, and you found the same source I did, which is the Science Fiction Encyclopedia. Who of these people are going to get celebrations and who aren't? Charles Harness, probably not. Probably not. Wynne Whiteford, uh, one of the Australian pioneers, even though you tell me he's, eh. <laughs> yeah, thanks for repeating that, Gary. But yes, that's true, yeah. Well, uh, Lee Brackett. Maybe. I th you know, with somebody like Michael Moorcock behind her, maybe. Okay, my, my, my theory about Lee Brackett is this, and I figured this out over a while. Lee Brackett had a problem of being too successful in too many areas. There is a cadre of noir mystery readers who read her half dozen or so mystery novels and remember her for that. The film scholars know that she worked with Howard Hawks. She worked on The Big Sleep. She sure. wrote Rio yep. Bravo. She was a great screenwriter. She wrote the treatment for The Empire Strikes Back. There's that group. There's another group that remembers the Eric John Starks pulp story. She was one of the great pulp writers. And there's a small group that remembers her one adult science fiction novel from the 50s, The Long Tomorrow. So she's got like four tiny groups of supporters, none of which are large enough to make her memorable. Although I think she should be. I think that's one of the centennials we ought to celebrate. Bernard Wolf? Probably not. Probably not. One science fiction novel called Limbo, one of the strangest dystopian novels ever written, because it's a novel in which disarmament is taken literally, where people cut their arms off so that they can't wield weapons. Um, but apart from that, he's known as kind of a mainstream, for, almost forgotten realist writer. Yep. Raymond F. Jones. Yeah, no, I don't see him being... Those people who really like the movie This Island Earth. Fred Hoyle, I'm going to guess that the Cambridge Observatory will do something about the centennial of Fred Hoyle because he was way better known as an astronomer than he was as a science fiction writer. Julius Schwartz. Probably. I, within fandom, maybe. In fandom and in the comic book industry. Yeah. I mean, this is, guy, I, I met, this is a guy I met, actually. This is a guy who was H.P. Lovecraft's agent. Who was Ray Bradbury's agent? Uh, so you mean who, there's only one degree of separation between you and HPL? That's absolutely right. I met Julie Schwartz, and Julie Schwartz knew HPL. There you go. But hang on, did Julie Schwartz meet HPL? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know that. Because yeah. Julie Schwartz was in New York, and HPL was in Providence. And he's dead now, so I can't ask him. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Mystery of the must, world. Uh, Mysteries of the world. Tom Godwin is remembered now for one story. So if there's a memorial, if there's a centennial celebration for Tom Godwin, it will only be more people attacking the cold equations for all its manifest flaws. Yep. Lester Del Rey? Lester Del Rey. Interesting question. Is he a thing anymore? There's a publishing company with his name on it. Uh, maybe they will do something. Well, that, they very well may do something. I mean, it, it certainly was um, not so much Lester that made the publishing company what it is, of course, as, um, as, as Judy Lynn. But nevertheless, he was somebody who wrote an early uh, classic robot story, um, Helen O'Loy, a classic uh, atomic reactor meltdown story in nerves. Uh, he probably did himself some damage by becoming a cranky elder statesman later in life, but he certainly had a lot of influence. Yeah. Henry Kuttner, um, I think, is somebody unfairly forgotten. Uh, yeah. I don't see people reading him anymore. I no. think, if anything, his wife, C.L. Moore, has had a more prosperous, posthumous life than he has. Yes. Um, 
and yet he was one of the great reliable. And that brings us to the last name on my list. I've written one, one before. I know what yours is, so we'll get to – wait a sec. What about okay. Orson Welles? Well, okay. Now, you're going a little bit outside the science Film, fiction. science fiction, War of the Worlds? Well, that's not, that's not film. That's radio. Well, but he, sorry, he did film, which make, means people pay attention, and science fiction, the War of the Worlds radio play. So, okay. Okay, fine. How about – there'll, there'll be a bunch of stuff about Orson Welles, but – but, and a lot of it will deal with the War of the Worlds, a radio play, which, by the way, was written not by Wells, but by Howard Koch, who uh, was a radio and TV writer, went on to become, I think, the producer and, and, and chief writer on Gunsmoke. But Wells had the idea of doing it in that way. So, how about so, Leonard yeah, Wibberley? Okay, how many people, we should leave this for our listeners to see if they can guess who Leonard Wibberley was. I liked Leonard Wibberley. I read Leonard Wibberley novels, uh, and I read more of them than the one that everybody knows. Okay, the one that everybody knows, because it was made into a film with Peter Sellers. Yep. The Mouse, the mouse That Roared. Yep. About a small middle European nation that decides the way to get out of their financial problems is to declare war on the United States, which they will then lose, and then will get enormous amounts of foreign aid from the United States. It's was actually a very funny novel. And he wrote a few others like that, too. Yeah. He was one of those people who was known as a humorist. His plots were like science fiction-y plots, but, um, but he was never really recognized much in the field. Yeah. You got anybody else? Oh, I don't know. We could throw out Richard Condon as a possibility. No. You don't. Okay, I know. Should we go to yours, then? Because I know who you mean, and you're right. Yeah, okay. The, the, the big one, I think the big centennial celebration this year is and probably ought to be Alice Sheldon writing as James Tiptree Jr. Because she was actually born in, I think, August of, nine, of, of 1915. She was? Uh, about 10 miles from where I'm sitting right now in Hyde Park in Chicago. And the story, and it's interesting enough that, that she's been dead for 27 years or something. Yeah, I mean, yeah. she, uh, it, it's a long time since she died, but. I think because, for two reasons, partly because it's such a dramatic story and because it was so well told in Julie Phillips' biography, because she was such a radical writer, and not that her fiction was radical, her fiction was actually very good conservative old-line space opera science fiction, but she made people completely rethink gender in a way that even, I'm going to say, Joanna Russ and Ursula Le Guin hadn't, um, and... And our friend Robert Silverberg, of course, has that famous misquotation, or not misquotation, but, but misapprehension of whether James Tiptree Jr. could have been a man or not, which yeah. it turns out to be, it's, it's, it's not, it shouldn't be taken as an insult to Bob's reading. It should be taken as, as, a, as a compliment to her writing, as it were. So she has become one of the legendary figures in science fiction over the period of a very short career. And um, as I say, because of the other elements in her life, she's just kind of a legendary figure that I think deserves to be one. So I think that if somebody at some convention during 2015 doesn't do something, I'm going to suggest maybe it might possibly be Wiscon because they give out an award in her name. I it actually have a, a more, I think, apt suggestion, Gary. I'm hoping that happens. I'm hoping we get to see this. Are you braced? No, you're braced for my, what I think should happen. I, I will point out to you right now, because I did not know this until about 30 seconds ago. The 2015 Hugo Awards will be presented at the 73rd World Science Fiction Convention on James Tiptree's 100th birthday. On her birthday? To the day. August, of course. That would make sense. And that's going to be in Spokane. Spokane. I think that there should be something as part of the Hugo Awards ceremony to acknowledge the centenary of Tiptree, given that it will happen on the actual day. It should happen twice. It should happen once at Wisconsin. Uh, it should happen once at Spokane. I can talk to people. I know people at Wisconsin. I don't personally know Spokane, but I'm willing to call up Spokane and say, Spokane. <laughs> Look, this. This, this, whole, this whole podcast now, as of this moment, is basically saying, hey, Spokane people, we've got this great idea Spokane. for you. Yeah. What's up? You've got a centennial coming up. Absolutely. We won't be coming, but we think well, we know what you should be doing with your convention. Oh, I'll probably be there. I won't be there. I know. But 
on that on that cheery note where we celebrate well actually celebrating long dead people is less sort of sort of terrible having to but talk about dead people but sad about it anymore they've been dead a long time it's okay yes but, I, but yes there you go I, I think that's what they should do so and with that i think that's close enough to a wrap gary i think it's close enough to a wrap too for the first the first podcast recorded in our fifth year or sixth year now I think it's our sixth year, Gary. And we've been very inefficient. We keep dropping back on the number of podcasts we're recording. This is our 7,014th podcast, everybody. Yeah. Well, for a weekly podcast, we only did 40 episodes last year. Oh, dear. On the other hand, that's still 40 hours of us blathering on. <laughs> if anybody asks, we'll tell them there were only 40 weeks last year. What do they know? They're science fiction readers. <laughs> On that cheery and uncurmudgeonly note, I will. Well, actually, I won't talk to you next week because this is an aberrant episode. This one, um, yes. This this episode is being ducked out because, well, because of my travels. And I think next week you will see you'll hear from our dear friend Guy Gavriel Kay, as I think is the plan. Unless something unexpected happens, and then sometime later this month it should be we will be debuting over on Tor.com, and we will see what happens there. Excellent. And okay. I will chat with you, whether we record or not, I'll chat with you again soon. Okay. On that note, thank you very much, Gary. And we thank remain you, we remain now, as always, the Cruise Street Podcast.